Bonus episode. Thank you guys for downloading the Here We Are podcast. Five episodes a month now. This is the extra episode. So you get two episodes this week. That's brought to you by Libro.fm. Offer code Here We Are to get your first three months of audiobooks for the price of one while supporting your local independent bookstore. And check out the great courses plus.com slash Here We Are. Get your first month free of some online courses and tune in at the end of the show where I go on, uh, I, I give a 40-minute spiel, uh, which you can opt in for or or not, a little bonus content, um, talking a little bit about some of my thoughts on consciousness and, and um, just more having, um, I, I talk about the wanting to have bigger conversations in in our everyday lives in um relating with friends and family and even strangers how do we how do we have some um bigger more complex more interesting more novel conversations uh rather than kind of forcing the same um run of the mill small talk so tune in at the end of the podcast to hear more about that if you're interested again that's just some uh some bonus content i've decided to start throwing out there uh recently for you guys and and thanks for all the support on patreon is helping me giving me more time to do stuff like that and share more of my world with you guys and for now enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Professor of Psychology in the Center for Mind and Brain at UC Davis, Please welcome Simona Getty, everybody. Thank you. So, did I overpronounce it? No, no, this is uh, great. Okay, thank we you had for a having me. Discussion. <laughs> you, you said Americans pronounce it Getty. Yes, they like, do. Like the, I used to live near one of the Getty museums. That's right. And uh, and so that was my inclination to pronounce it that way. But it's get tea, like get me some tea. Indeed. Get tea. Okay, cool. So uh, Simona, she. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So last minute of my life is in disarray and I'm all disorganized and I'm I'm feeling good about it. Actually, I'm I'm still being incredibly productive, but I, I'm reaching out to people so last minute because I, I have a lot on my plate right now, as I'm sure yeah. you do. And you found time to to meet with me and I don't know a thing about you. So <laughs> So why don't you tell me a little bit uh, about yourself and, and uh, your background? What yeah. You know? So I am a developmental psychologist by training with, with interests in how children develop their ability to think and remember. Um, so I've been doing work looking at how children build 
representations in their head about what they remember and how um, we can understand how they think about their memories, how they reflect about their memories. And that is really what I've been doing for the past 15 years or so hmm. since I moved to UC Davis. Prior to moving to UC Davis, I lived in Italy and I was a scientist in Italia um, at the National Research Council, which I very much enjoy. But it turns out that doing science in the US is much funner, there's much more support. What do you mean? Well, the at least compared to Italy, I should say, because it's not true everywhere in Europe. But in the United States, there's very much a culture of uh, an academic culture of supporting um, independent thought and creativity in science. And I got my PhD in the United States. And then when I got back to Italy, I got an academic position there, which is rare. Uh, but I had to come to terms with the fact that in Italy is just different. There's much more hierarchical um, kind of structure in science. There's more hmm. of a kind of an expectation that a young um, investigator, I'm not a young investigator anymore, <laughs> that time time. I was, uh, that young investigators join a group and they're guided by a more seasoned scientist. Um, and that is um, kind of a different approach to scientific life. But for somebody who uh, was trained in the U.S., it was a little less exciting to adapt to that type of, of, of work and of work style, I should say. And then I got back here where I had much more of an opportunity to kind of follow my ideas and so. So I I never went to college. You know, I've talked I talked with um, some two hundred and thirty uh, scientists or mm -hmm. something uh, now, but but um, you know I, I never I never was involved in academia myself. What is uh, what's the difference from from that in the U.S. Uh, what do you mean in terms is, of like there, there's just like more academic freedom? Or? Uh, well, I think I think it's a little bit of a, a cultural, I guess, byproduct. In part, it also has to do with resources. In Italy, at least, the resources are for science are kind of limited. Funds are limited, mm -hmm. and um, and perhaps that is one reason why. Uh, resources coalesce around some groups, and there's less of an opportunity for the next generations, I feel. Hmm. Um, whereas I think here, uh, you know, the, I feel that academia is really centered around the notion that the new generation, the new blood will bring in more ideas, more, more approaches, more, you know, we all improve. I think that there's still this uh, kind of assumption about, which is a healthy assumption, and so we, uh, the departments are organized in such a way that they, for the most part, I'm a little idealistic here, but they support their young and they try to to kind of yeah. foster their career, their innovation. I mean, I guess as you're saying it, I, I often hear the, in the U.S., maybe, maybe it's plenty of other places as well, but I hear academics use the expression of science advancing one funeral at a time. <laughs> Here, which is a different view. Then. That is a different view. And, and I mean, this is, I, I, I mean, I don't want to sound Pollyanna about it. It's, it's, I, you know, I recognize the, this, the difficulties that people face, and I do, absolutely do. I'm aware, but I'm making a comparison to right. my experience in Italy and what I know to be the case in, yeah. in other countries. That's really interesting. And I think that um, it's still better hmm. <laughs> here. 
I always think about like it's such a small. It's crazy being in the U.S. and then you look at like, well, what's academia? You talk about getting funding in Italy. Mm-hmm. Well, like if you look at a map, it's like, well, this is like this tiny little. It'd be like. Uh, w- you know, getting the funding in like Rhode Island or something. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, yeah, but there's also fewer people, right? So it's, right. you know, there, there's def- it's definitely the case that the relative amount, I mean, don't ask me the percentage of the economy that goes into science, uh, I have well, no idea, but it's still less. <laughs> certain that that's significantly so Hmm. yeah so how did you get uh, interested what drew you into childhood development and and memory yeah well um it's uh it's been a little bit a little bit at a time kind of a step at a time i didn't you know i'm not one of those people who was born thinking ah what i want to do in life must be this but when i was in college which was uh, the university of padova in italy um I became, I went to a talk once about a, a lawyer who was um, doing work on children as eyewitnesses at the time. And mm. so this was somebody who was interested in the, in, in the relation between psychology and law. And, um, and I thought it was really intriguing to ask the question of how children's abilities as witnesses might serve a purpose in a legal system and, you know, Cognition is complex. The legal system is complex. How they they talk to each other. <laughs> um, so that was the initial uh, kind of I, reason why I became interested. And and then I learned after that there was already a little bit of a literature on children on as eyewitnesses. So I started studying it a little more. And I looked and I did a thesis, you know, an undergraduate thesis to on the topic. And that is how it got started. So really, that's that. That was the initial uh, interest point. So it's very, you know, a bit random. I happened to be at that talk that one day, but that was really stimulating to me. Hmm. So, and then I worked on the topic during my PhD, which was actually at UC Davis uh, with Gail Goodman, who I believe you talked to, where in, in, in relation yeah, to. She's to not- she hasn't been on the show yet or anything. Right, but yeah. right, right. And she, she does work on eyewitness memory and children who are traumatized and such. So for my doctoral work, I really looked at that side of things. But over time, I became more interested in the more general questions about memory functioning in children as opposed to the application to the legal system and such. So, hmm. And now here I am. I was talking with this woman, Gabby Principe, re- recently. Oh, yeah. You know her? Yeah. I had her on the show recently, mm-hmm. and she she had uh, she was talking about some fun studies of bringing in a uh, magician and to yeah. to do a magic show for kids, and then at the end they're supposed to pull a rabbit out of the hat, and and the rabbit isn't there, and it's this whole thing, and then packs up leaves. And then they kind of spread a little rumor and then check in a week later and kids have kids remember the darndest things and and have have created these incredible stories of everything um, that that happened that day that uh, did not, in fact, uh, happen. So so what kind of uh, what kind of studies are you doing? So we do studies that are um, that are a, a little different from from those in that we are trying to get at what children can retain and in what way they can retain and how they can reflect on their memories. So we in our studies we don't since you made a connection with that other line of work we don't try to trick 
children into <laughs> oh, into, come on. into the well <laughs> once in a while once in a while it's hard. I I don't I, <laughs> I think it's very interesting work it it addresses a different question though so the, the work about right, the, looking at um, at how you can uh, create distortions in right. people's memories or reports ask really questions about the malleability of, of people's memories including mm-hmm. children we are interested in how children put together elements of an experience what happened when it happened when where it happened into some kind of memory a representation that is complex and includes all of this rich information. So that's one part. Uh, mm-hmm. So we do studies to to ask that question. But we are also really interested in how children learn to self-reflect on their memory states, how they know when they know and they and when they think they are uncertain about their memory states and that's another big topic. So we're really interested in understanding uh, how children become aware of what they remember and whether they can use this awareness to make decisions, right? So suppose mm. that you're a kid at school uh, in a classroom and, and your teacher asks you, um, hey, did you remember what I said last week about the name of the Roman army? You know, what is the name of a, you want to say legion or something like that? So a question about, say, something that you might have learned pre- previously. Um, so if you, so what would you do? So I, I, it just happened here where I was, I was like, I think it, her name was Gabby, and I thought I maybe remembered her last name, but I had a level of uncertainty about it, and I didn't want to embarrass myself, so I paused the podcast to look it up, and and so so my brain at some point in there was assessing my level of certainty deciding that I was not certain enough to go forward with that Beautiful example. That's perfect, right? So that's exactly what we think these uncertainty signals are for. They alert you that you have to pay closer attention, that you should seek out additional information before committing. So if you are that child in the classroom before raising your hand and say, me, me, you want to really know that you know the answer. You might also raise your hand to ask for more explanations if you think that maybe you didn't understand or you couldn't remember because you were not paying attention or something like that. So we think that these uncertainty signals are really important. They can help you not uh, embarrass yourself when you right. say a name versus another. They can help you realize when you need more information or when you need more understanding or they can help you realize that you're ready to go, in which case you can take the test, you can volunteer an answer in the classroom, you hmm. can uh, act on the basis of this. That's very intriguing. So how is the brain assessing something like that? Well, that's a very, very big question. Yeah, I um, think so. And so there's, uh, up until recently, actually very little work was conducted to, to ask that question, especially in childhood. But we've done a few studies now that, that seem to suggest that what we do, what the brain does, is possibly first kind of send out a little bit, what I would call a little bit of an error signal, an alert signal, something that would suggest, hey, pay attention, there may be something going on here, maybe you're making a mistake. And then there are more uh, kind of, There are other regions in the brain that might uh, kind of integrate the signal with the current goals. So if right now your goal is to figure out 
your best memories for some test that you're taking. You might kind of uh, sort your memories into the very good ones that you're going to put down in your test versus the other ones that you're not very sure about and that you're going to keep um, on hold for, for, for the time being. Um, or, or you might figure out that there are some, um, again, information that you want to look at, look further, that you want to study more, etc. Mm. Um, so yeah, it seems that there might be some kind of lower level signal that might alert the system that errors might be happening, mm. and then some more sophisticated kind of system that assesses this signal and integrate it with current goals. Right, because there has to be so many different um, influences in terms of just context alone in, in the way in which the brain is biasing even what to do with that level of uncertainty. Where, uh, like, here's an example. I'm often a guest on podcasts, like some some other comedian's podcast or something like that. And I can like kind of really wing it and wildly speculate and kind of like half-ass regurgitate some of the things that I've learned right, from this podcast and, and like sound like a real bright guy uh, because they don't know any better <laughs> when, when I'm a, That's when right. I'm a That's little right. bit off. But then I come and I do this podcast and I talk to experts and and even if I am pretty certain that like, okay, I've read these things before. I know that I've heard someone lecture on this. I think what I'm about to say about this one study is correct, and with anyone else in the world, I would just be saying it as if it's a fact right now, but when I'm talking to the expert in that field, I, I often am like, because I've had the past where I say something and then they're like, well, actually, that one hasn't been falsified. I'm like, oh, well, it's not my fault. I learned that from somebody else. But, but, that, but the, my level of uncertainty goes up so much with with this or or even the level of kind of control that you want to kind of exert over what you're saying right so the, right, right, the example right. you're absolutely correct i think your example is really good the one that i like to use with my students to kind of help them understand the same point is one that goes like this if you're sitting at a meeting with your boss and your boss is somebody who uh, really values um kind of unguarded, free-flowing um, exchange of ideas, then you might share some half-baked ideas that you have thought about right. and that seem good enough to share, but they're not exactly completely thought out. And so you might decide that even though you feel a little uncertain, you may say, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try it out and I'll share it. Hmm. But if instead your, your, your boss is somebody who likes to shame people who say silly, silly things or that are not are venturing with kind of contributions that are not completely thought out you would be a lot more cautious before hmm. before you know being ready to go and so and, and so your example is a is a healthier one one where instead of fearing humiliation by yeah. the evil boss is about you know how much knowledge do i want to volunteer depending on the level of knowledge of the context in which you think you are, right? Whether you're talking with somebody who presumably maybe knows more than you do or yeah. where you think that they don't. Um, so yeah, so this requires really kind of an integration of your feelings of your current 
knowledge and understanding your own certainty uh, with uh, with an assessment of other people's knowledge. And we've done these studies mm. actually looking at this, where mm. we where we manipulate, we, we experimentally manipulate whether uh, children are in a company of um, of an adult, an experimenter who provide different levels of, of provide information or is witness as providing information that varies very now and how accurate this this experimenter sounds like and therefore uh, children have to understand whether they want to kind of recognize that an accurate um, kind of witness was there and they can kind of believe what they're saying what this person is saying and integrate what they're saying with what they think versus ignore them because probably they're not right anyways so mm. the understanding of context is definitely a variable and a variable that is important context in which case we're defining it as a context in which different levels of knowledge in the mm. outside world may be experienced right mm. but right now here is a challenge for you like for us as as people interested in this question is how do you know when somebody is accurate right so we're interested in understanding now like new challenges of you know you peruse the internet uh, and you're overloaded with information all the time how do you know which post is accurate and and which one is fake news since fake news are so mm -hmm. you know uh, so how do what kind of signals can children recognize as valid or uh, helpful signals of, of credibility. Um, so that's another question that we like to ask. Hmm. So I'm, I'm uh, sitting next to two guys on a plane, two strangers who are having some conversation about sports, mm -hmm. something that I know nothing about. And one has a position on some trade that some team should have. Another has another position. Mm -hmm. They're both equally adamant about this, and who is That's who's right. more who's more correct? And, 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 so how is yeah? How is the brain assessing something? Yeah, like I mean the, the 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 well, the honest answer is that I don't necessarily know exactly how that does. But what we what we are thinking is that we are trying to figure out uh, what kind of I mean, we always assess what we know and what we hear based on what we know. And therefore, we can imagine that um, children might and adults might use the relative familiarity of the information that is being discussed to kind of glean uh, or infer something about the accuracy. So something, some of these inferences have really to do with the message itself. But then we also know, just to increase the complexity of it all, that there are signals of of kind of accuracy that may depend on how the information is delivered so not the content itself but how the information is delivered whether the person seems credible whether they well they have a swagger you yeah. wouldn't have a swagger if if, if you were uh, doubting yours that's right i that's know right. i wouldn't if i was <laughs> uncertain about my information i wouldn't be delivering it with such confidence and that's because right. they are this is maybe this reliable indicator that's right that's right <laughs> So that's exactly, so th this is, again, um, kind of an additional layer of complexity. It's, it's really, you know, no one, no one's career is going to f end with the idea that we've solved all of these problems because there's a lot of right. interrelated questions that we're asking. And, and with children, going back to kind of the specifics of what we are trying to do is that, you know, a lot of, of these answers have to do 
with how children go about learning in situations like classrooms or other learning contexts that though are really important for their academic success and others. So we are you know, particularly invested in understanding the implications of these processes for well, academic achievement is one thing, but then and then there are other domains like uh, eyewitness memories that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier, right? That's one question popped into my head. If I can try to tease this apart, because after I came up with my example mm-hmm. of of uh, being on different podcasts yes. and having different levels mm-hmm. of uncertainty, and then hearing you explain some of that. It made me think about it slightly differently, and and I'm what I'm wondering is, and you, you, my guess is you probably don't know the full answer to this question, but my, probably uh, not. If you, if you have a sense, <laughs> is it that the brain is potentially first getting some no, no matter who I'm sitting with and who I'm sitting in front of, and we're going to talk about climate change or something like that right so so i have some set level of certainty about how um you know the greenhouse effect works from like uh, from the viewpoint of physics or something and, and so i i have x percentage of certainty but then after that certainty then there are more filters that pull in that context of like, okay, here's how certain I am, and now I'm assessing who I'm with, so how certain I need to be, and if that level of certainty is an appropriate level of certainty to cross the gap to opening my mouth and blabbing about. Yeah, yeah, actually there is, the the, the research does distinguish between these two levels quite explicitly, between um, what might be your kind of subjective feelings of, of confidence in whatever you're thinking about and the threshold that you might put, that you might set in order to endorse um, kind of a anything really, like a, a notion, a statement or whatever. So, and there are like actual formal models to uh, to assess how this threshold type of mechanism is set and is changed um, depending on the environment. Again, you might think that the threshold goes up and up and up if you are with expert and you kind of relax it a little bit when you um, when you feel that you don't need to have the same level of rigor before sharing an idea. Um, so that that's definitely true. So these two levels of analysis are in fact distinguished. And yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, and I'm, then at the same time, I'm wondering if, right from the onset, there are biases um, built in. You know, we we've talked about some of the kind of evolutionary underpinnings of self-deception mm. in the past, and we, we mentioned confidence mm-hmm. being a thing where, it, if if you aren't necessarily if something's being masked in there from your conscious awareness, if 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 your subconscious, non-conscious, whatever, is assessing some level of certainty, but then what your brain is feeding into your consciousness is this different level of certainty, then you have this confidence. When you're talking about academic success, 
Yeah, certainly like having an assessment of your certainty is a big factor, but also having uh, like someone accurately assessing their certainty might have them to second guess themselves so much or or lack the confidence yeah. to like show up to class and oh, do yeah, the yeah. work in the first place and you and then I mean you look at things like uh, the fire festival or whatever. I don't know if you saw that documentary on <laughs> on Netflix. It's uh, the, this festival that some like kind of scam artist and and Ja Rule put together. And this guy was he is just like this. I don't even know if he start. It's tough to tell if he started like outright. I'm going to scam people or just someone that thought like the idea of putting on some festival was a good idea and that he could pull it off. And then after the fact, just deluded himself and deluded himself. And it was eventually this enormous disaster. But um, but if you see this guy, like right up until the very like everyone else in the world knew uh, everyone around him knew that this they're like we need to cancel this this is going to be a disaster and right up until they like opened the doors he was still like absolutely convinced yeah. that they were going to pull this off so yeah so i think so the kind of certainty and certainty that i'm talking about has to do really with this kind of ongoing assessment of your states of knowledge so right now can i discriminate with my subjective feelings when I know versus when I don't know or when I know really well when I know less well so that's one piece and but the the other point that you're making which I think is a valid one is that there are in fact individual differences uh, on how kind of globally people feel about themselves if they are more or less self self-confident and or doubtful um, and that's one 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 dimension there are people who are just really uncomfortable with uncertainty so they don't like um, the feeling of not knowing well and they try to escape it they try to find disambiguating information or kind of not really engage with uncertain situations because it's just deeply discomforting yeah i am just the opposite i love doing a science podcast where that's right uh, whereas others feel like that that kind of level of uncertainty is mostly promoting kind of creativity or flexibility or search or things that are ultimately really stimulating um so there's definitely quite a bit of work that looks at that uh I'm not sure quite a bit, but some that looks at at that at that individual variation, mm-hmm. um, and and I really like the idea of linking uncertainty with curiosity, right? Mm. And linking uncertainty with creativity. The that idea is- that if you are so that's how I would think about it, right? That kind of uncertainty is is a state that you can reflect on. And then you, it can be a, a kind of a, it can alert, as I was saying earlier, the system that something needs to happen. You might, or should happen, or it might be good to happen. And you might uh, act on it uh, by seeking more information. And I would imagine that that could be the basis for curiosity or seeking alternative solutions. And that could be a basis for creativity. Um, so I really see this 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 concept hmm. connected in in a, in a deep way. Um, so 
Yes, that, your uncertainty is good or can be good. Well, because I, I, I will say, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'll, I'll first pat myself on the back and then cut myself down in the same soup. So I, I often just love just like drifting about in this sea of complexity and and the learning all of these things and like oh is there even free will or is there ah. is that subjective feeling it just the uh, the the mm-hmm. inevitable outcome of this predetermined mathematical underlying physical law that makes me feel like i'm in control of things and, ah, you know and then uh and and that certainly lends itself to creativity but at the same time i would say and, and these aren't necessarily connected but i would say i'm i'm someone that uh lacks uh self-esteem in many uh-huh. in many aspects of my life i i don't know if they that necessarily goes hand in hand. Yeah, but. I mean, th- you know, this is is interesting that you mention it because I, um, you'd think that your confidence or lack thereof in a context of um, your general confidence or lack thereof in the context of, say, cognitive uh, tasks or whatever might have also implications for general feelings of self-worth, which self-esteem captured, right? Um, and, and, um, and again, what, what, we study in my kind of neck of the woods is as to do really with the discriminability, you know, the, the capacity to discriminate with your own subjective feelings of confidence between different states of knowledge, right? So suppose that you're somebody with low self-esteem and you tend to think poorly about yourself, it is still possible that despite this average lower confidence that you might still be able, and that would be the hypothesis, to discriminate subjectively between sometimes when you know a little better than others that you wouldn't just be flatly <laughs> believing that you don't know anything ever right, 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 correct right, so right, that's right. what i'm i'm trying to distinguish huh. here so there yeah. may be kind of general levels of confidence that people vary on and certainly uh researchers in personality and uh, individual differences they really have characterized this spectrum of of, of self-confidence quite a bit but uh, but I would argue that even along this continuum you can identify situations where people may feel more or less confident depending right. on how they are they have learned or what they know or whatever so that's, yeah yeah so that's the 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 idea here certainly despite that I, I love a good debate and I'm, right? I'm a very opinionated uh, person <laughs> and I will stick to my guns and everything excellent else, so. Um, so how are you, how are you testing stuff like this? Like yeah. what, what are the actual studies you're doing? Yeah. So, um, with older kids, uh, we really put them in situations where they've learned, they have to learn, um, a variety of things. So might be new words or pictures or, or, or things like that. They have to remember what we present to them. And then we ask, when we ask them to remember, we also ask them to tell us how confident they are in each judgment. And then we look at the variables that affect this uh, capacity to tell when they're right or when they're wrong and with their confidence judgment. So that's with older kids. But recently, I'm really excited to look at new work that we are really doing to examine the origin of these feelings of uncertainty in very, very young children, like two-year-olds, who wouldn't be able to tell you, I, I, I'm certain, or wouldn't be able to rate their confidence overtly, mm-hmm. you know, by telling you I'm very sure and kind of sure because they don't have the, even the vocabulary quite to be quite yet to, to really make that distinction. And so we're looking to see whether even little kids show evidence that they are assessing 
their knowledge. And the way we do that <laughs> is by asking whether when you put little toddlers in a context where they can remember things or we can teach them things and they have to tell us what they have learned by, say, pointing uh, or, or, or saying a word. So simple tasks, right? Whether they hesitate more when they, mm. when they end up being wrong or whether if you put them in front of a screen where we can record their eye movements, which we do, do they go between the two options more frequently? Do they mm. alternate more hmm. if they are if they end up being wrong compared to when they actually give you the right answer? Are they um, more likely to show even facial expressions of uncertainty when they actually don't know? So we, um, for example, we did a study once where two-year-olds are shown pictures of objects. So say there's an elephant on one side and there's a, a bear on the other side. But this, both of these pictures are hidden, so there's, there's, they're not really clear. You can only see a few details. So we tell two-year-olds, we say, help me look for the elephant. Where is the elephant? And so they're sitting in front of, the, of this screen and there are these pictures that are degraded so they cannot really see them well. And we say, where is the elephant? Where is it hiding? They look and then they point. So we're asking, are two-year-olds more likely to respond faster, look between options less, seem, seem more confident when they actually get it compared to when they don't? And if that's the case, in, we think that those kind of implicit signals of error that I was telling you earlier, that they might be present even in very, very... Um, young childhood. Mm -hmm. um, and we know some behaviors that, that, that very young children show that might be informed by this, this uncertainty. So for example, if, uh, if an infant even who is uh, walking around or kind of maybe even not even walking, but um, Crawling? Crawling, thank you. <laughs> See, when fluency. This was, this uh, was... I, I got to start video recording this show so yes, people crawling. can see you. <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> See you miming. <laughs> I was miming crawling. So an infant that crawls, um, if you place her in a, in a, in, in, in a, on a surface that has a little bit of an incline, mm -hmm. you'll see that uh, the crawler will start crawling like more slowly. They'll start like looking for for a better basis of their, you know, of, of the, the, the steps that they have to take. So is that uncertainty? Are they appreciating that they might not be able to be as successful uh, when, they, when they proceed? Um, mm. if, if a toddler, like, or an infant, really, who is playing with toys, if a toy disappears and there's a caregiver nearby, the toddler will turn their head toward the parents. They will refer to the parents and say, where is it? Is it because they are... Uh, appreciating that they don't know or is because they just simply know that when things don't go their way you know the best thing they can do is to look at their caregiver mm -hmm. I mean it's possible that it hasn't have anything to do with uncertainty but these behaviors do make sense from the perspective of an uncertainty kind of explanation and so we're really trying to understand if in fact um, these early signals are meaningful these behaviors are meaningful hmm. as signals of uh, an initial kind of introspection, if you will, on uncertainty. Hmm. Oh, well, I have so many questions. Um, I guess one, just right at the end there, when you 
when you mentioned looking um, looking back to the parent, um, do you think that there may be some individual differences in just a general level of independence? Whereas now it's it, it, it's like when you um, are driving or being driven or you know organizing <laughs> something or like uh, like sometimes when i when something's being kind of done for me or i'm getting help with something the idea of doing that task myself seems very overwhelming and then i'm like put in a situation where there's no one else around mm-hmm. or i'm the leader in this particular scenario and like different it's like something else mm-hmm. is active in me and I'm not looking around, I'm taking charge and I'm like confident and mm-hmm. I'm surprised how confident I am in my ability to execute something. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if there could be um, some even environmental kind of developmental influences in creating those individual differences where, where one child is used to like, you know, looking at their... Uh, parents for the 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 same way that we like well i'm just gonna google it quick rather than like thinking things out for myself i'm just gonna quickly out outsource this that's right that's right um uh, do you think there might be something oh yeah yeah i think i think um this is a very interesting question i'm actually really fascinated by uh even though i've never really studied specifically on my own some in some ways tangentially but uh, on my own work um that is if you if you place a baby or even an older child or an adult into a situation where the task there's a task that is hard some babies even babies will keep at it for a long time before showing any sign of frustration whereas others just give up quite quickly right I feel like I'm a giver upper. Like I'm, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. You're I'm sitting. throwing the towel. Okay, fine. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe you are. Maybe, maybe you are. Maybe you aren't. But there's, you know, there's, there's a bit of a of a difference. Then there are some uh, individuals who seem to really thrive in situations in which they don't seem to be able to see a solution inside, and they really want to. They are very motivated by um, working out the solution through multiple attempts and others, again, who would want to see the end of this process quickly to see what the solution is. So really, they enjoy the outcome more than the process of getting there, mm. whereas others seem to really like the process. Yeah, I, I like the creation. <laughs> I, I don't, uh, I'm not a real finisher. But this is interesting, right? Because you just said that you get very frustrated and you give up right away. But if you like the process of, of creating something, then it seems to me that you might tolerate more of the frustration that you give yourself credit for i'm gonna say that right (laughs) now i don't give myself much credit for much of anything Um, all right so what are (laughs) this is i always love when my podcast turns into this terrific therapy session (laughs) where i get to learn these things about myself you did not choose the right person Oh, now you're not I'm believing unable. in yourself. No, no, um, I just said I don't do this kind I, of I know, I know. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, so, so what are um, uh, what are some of the findings? Uh, what are what are some of the results? So, you you mentioned the study of having kids uh, looking back and mm-hmm. forth at the picture, a level of confidence relating to um, uh, you know final accuracy. Yeah. Uh, what what are the findings? Yeah. So, in in two year olds, in the studies of two year olds, where uh, we we really found evidence fully consistent with with what we were expecting. That is, uh, two year olds are more likely to. 
uh, respond quickly, and if they're accurate compared to uh, when they're inaccurate, they're also more likely to examine the, the two options, the two possible response options more if they are um, uh, inaccurate compared to accurate, meaning they seem to need more information before committing to a choice and ultimately they may not find it. In another kind of twist, we look to see whether uh, they were, e it was easier or fast, they were more, they responded more quickly uh, if uh, the items were similar compared to dissimilar. So two-year-olds were faster and they looked between options less if they, they were asked to find a giraffe and the alternative was a broccoli versus if they were looking between a giraffe and another animal, four-legged animal. So mm -hmm. it seems that they really not just, con you know, distinguish it between when they know and when they find something where, so, where they, don't, they don't have the right answer, but even they can f make pretty fine distinctions. So here are two options that look similar. So I'm going to try harder to examine, to figure it out mm. compared to when from the beginning you can see that in one stimulus, even if it's covered, you can see that there's a little bit of a, maybe a tail or a little bit of a foot of the foot <laughs> an animal okay I don't, you don't say that. you're fine <laughs> sometimes despite the, all of these years of education in the united states sometimes i use the wrong words but anyways that's all right <laughs> that's okay yes um but so what i was saying is that they they um you know we can really we can really pinpoint at behaviors that suggest that really even two-year-olds investigate the situation. Mm. They try to figure out what's their best answer and they look more, uh, again, they deliberate more quickly if the evidence is better, just like you and I. Hmm. And so that's one interesting piece. We also found and start to find some evidence that these kind of behaviors may be related to being able to report, I don't know. So around two and a half years of age, many, many toddlers begin to use the word, I don't know. Either they use it or they signal it, like, I don't know, you know, this kind of. And so we found that the par parental reports of whether their toddler used this expression is associated, not super strongly, I might admit, but is associated with these behaviors that I was telling you about, suggesting that there may be really a connection between these kind of behaviors that are supposed to disambiguate a situation for little children and how they are starting to reflect on their um, knowledge. Hmm. So that's very exciting. This is a lot of what we're doing right now with very young children. Just for clarity. Yeah, sorry so, if I wasn't clear. No, no, no. I, um, I just want to make sure I'm understanding. So, so almost... In a way, the more self-aware a child is, or or is becoming in a stage of, of yes. development, the more accurately they're assessing this level of certainty, and then the more potentially confident they are. And when they're right compared to when they're right compared to they're wrong. So that's huh. the idea, and that's the guiding hypothesis in all of this work. So in older children, we can look to see more explicitly about what they say there, how they are reporting their confidence, what 
and how they're actually deciding. In young children who cannot tell us how confident they are yet because they really cannot do the task the way we would do them with older children, we can look at these implicit, indirect methods, behavioral kind of signals that they might do the same. They might be engaged in similar processes of assessment of their of the evidence that they, it's, it's before their eyes in order to make decisions. And then, um, and, and we can connect that with other uh, kind of indices of, of confidence, in this case, assessed by the parents. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so still have so many more questions. I don't want to forget, um, as, as I need to be mindful of our time here, um, I don't want to forget to ask you, yeah, I have my guests each week plug a, a charity of their choice. So why don't we do this before I move forward? With yeah, so I um, there are many very sure. favorite charities, but I think I'm going to plug St. Jude's uh, Children's Hospital. Oh, that's a good one. Yes, I, uh, yes, it's a classic. I know, yeah. um, and they do such great work, and I Absolutely. and I and I love and I love donating to them. Yeah, no one's going to argue with the St. Jude's thing. <laughs> yes. That's an easy decision for right. people. Yes. Um, all right, terrific. Uh, all right, so uh, I'm wondering about the. So, so you're studying development uh, kind of across the lifespan. I, I'm wondering about the stages of um, development, if there are these um, milestones that, that we reach at certain ages, at certain times of our, uh, of our life, when some of these systems come online more, when some of them start getting expressed differently. Mm-hmm. Um you, you know, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, young kids might not be able to, like, say that they're this amount of confidence or not right. confident or whatever. And and so so that's, you, you know, maybe maybe they're tapping into the same things using the same systems and just not articulating. That's right. With the, with that's the right. That's right. Bigger and words. That yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly and certainly language, the emergence of language is really important for this, uh, for the ability to express and report on subjective feelings. Um, there are additional capacities that you might think are are really important. You know, when you we, when we ask children to tell us how confident they are, they use a scale, right? They they we show them an image of a of a child who looks very uncertain, an image of another child who looks a little more certain, and so forth. So uh-huh. it's a visual representation to help them out. That sounds like a very cute picture scale. I can show them to you. <laughs> it's a very cute picture, in fact, indeed. But what you might, but 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 kind of. The implication there is that children should have some sort of representation, even of quantity, right? To to understand that this mm-hmm. is a little, this is more, this is more, this is more, I right? See. Along this continuum, this line mm-hmm. that they might be presented with. So um, there's definitely a, um, additional abilities that are important um, in order to express confidence. But the question is whether these are just abilities that are helpful for children to express their confidence in a way that we can understand or whether these skills are necessary or integral to experiencing uncertainty in the first place. And I would argue that, you know, based on the initial information that we're getting, the initial data we get, that these signals of uncertainty can be, can emerge and, and be um, 
experienced even without the words for them. So this is, I'm going to say this, right. <laughs> which is actually changed a little bit my mind compared to how I used to think about this. I used to think that language was fundamental to be able to integrate these signals with the kind of experience of, of, of uncertainty. But I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Mm, yeah. Um, and I there, didn't think. Yeah, 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 right. Well, you know, People, <laughs> people change, change their minds. I like that. I like to do the. I forget what that cognitive bias is, but I, I, uh, we're like after you hear something, you're like, oh, oh yeah, of course. I knew it all along. <laughs> yeah, I knew yeah. it all along. <laughs> right. no, 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 I actually didn't know it. Oh, that, yes, that, I know. But that's what I was just doing. Yes, to yes, you. yes, yes. Right. No, I. You know, in some cases, I like to think, oh yes, I absolutely <laughs> knew it from the beginning. But this one is one that I've been huh. wavering over the years a little bit. I see. Um, and so I think that, um, so I'm not sure that we can really talk about a qualitative difference during development, but there's certainly skills that are, um, that come online, that become more sophisticated, that really help the expression and, and even perhaps the experience of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so that's, that's so in, important. And in memory, what also helps is the fact that our memories get better. Right, and they are better and more precise and more differentiated. So, like for example, for example, if I were to tell you, um, you know, uh, hold on your phone, pick up your phone, and and dial the number, okay? Or I ask you, imagine to pick up your phone and dial the number, mm-hmm. okay? So, um, is the next week you come back and we talk about what happened? In, during this during this conversation, and I ask you, did you pick up the phone, or did you think that you pick up the phone? Now, it, over mm. time, it's a bit difficult to remember what we actually did was versus what we actually imagined doing, right? Because mm. with right. aging, at least personally, I don't know anymore what I imagine and what I actually do. <laughs> mm. Well, that's very hard to do for children as well. But what we found was that in 10, 11-year-olds, they can keep track of that difference fairly well. Hmm. And they report higher confidence for actions that they actually did compared to actions that they only imagined, okay? Hmm. So that is suggests to me two things. One is that their memories between imagined actions and actions that they actually enacted are different, subtle difference, but they are different. And their subjective uncertainty or certainty, however you wanna phrase it, captures that. So I think that that's really important. That's something that continues to develop how how much, how fine discriminations we can mm. make uh, in our memory states. Um, so again, so there's language, there's maybe some aspects of quantitative reasoning, there's some aspects of kind of memory discriminability. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of different things are happening at once. Hmm. Yeah. I... I mean, I wonder, well, now I'm going off on tangents in my mind, wondering wondering what the mechanism is for making those differentiations because there is, to, to imagine something and, mm-hmm. and create these mental models, right. um, you know, my conscious subjective experience of this mental model is like foggy and everything but but i imagine in my brain it might be something that looks very convincing you have a dream at night you don't realize you're dreaming this is a very convincing i i don't see any reason why my brain couldn't be 
representing me dialing a phone with the same level of convincing vivid that's right accuracy and so then how what is the mechanism in there that's going like this this one this was real was yeah i mean that's a that's a very important question right so um what what we know when you when you look at the difference between memories of enacted actions versus imagined actions, even though there's a lot of similarity among them, it's still the case that the enacted actions tend to include more sensory details. People mm-hmm. seem to be able to report more features that, that they saw or smells or sensory information, whereas in the the imagined actions seem seem to include more. Um, details about maybe uh, kind of thoughts or feelings or things like that. So they're like fine distinctions to be sure, but they're like cues that we can use on average to say, okay, if I really can see myself holding that phone, touching the plastic of the cover, um, even like the feeling on your on on the tip of your finger while you're dialing, if I somehow I can. F- um, kind of retrieve that detail, I might know that that was an enacted memory. But of course, if your mental exercise while you're imagining is includes this kind of exercise, now instead of saying, imagine that you pick up the, the phone, I also tell you, imagine that you're touching the plastic, imagine what it feels like when you're with your the, you know, the, your fingertip, you're actually touching the surface, the th- smooth surface of your phone and Etc. Right. I might give you more and more ways to create more vivid imaging imagery, which then would be make it more difficult to discriminate a true memory from an imagined memory. Hmm. Right. Hmm. Um, yeah. Right. And this is the kind of work. Oh. So that. Right. 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 That these other Gail. people will do. Yeah. Gail or or Gabby or, or others. Ga- Gabby. 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 That. See, that, there's. I should have trusted my initial uncertainty was correct, and then I got confident. And, but Gabby, yeah, sorry, the, the, Gabby. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, uh, where if you, there are ways. Gail was who put me in touch with you. Yes, there we go. she was. Um, yeah. And so, you know, so if, uh, you know, so you, there are many ways in which you can kind of push people to believe in their imagery because you can instruct them to include more details in this hmm. imaginations right hmm. to, and then if 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 you do this as you engage in this exercise and then time goes by as you lose the, the specificity of your memories then it's very difficult to, to tell what you actually did and what you only imagined hmm. or what you heard about from others etc yeah gosh and there's just an endless number of factors there's i mean just just as a uh, as a comedian you know i want i want people to have positive memories of the show so that they yes. come back and there's all sorts of you know there's like peak end rule stuff going on there that you know every comic knows you want to end really strong right. and uh, i mean a lot of times you can have like a fairly weak performance and then Close it out with that killer bit that everyone remembers, Good and love. that's what they remember. And 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 the, it, it, you do the opposite, and they have a and so man, there's just endless numbers of factors. I uh, man, I I we didn't even 
really even talk about your other half of your work with representations. It, it, well, like, like I said, I love uncertainty. <laughs> yes. We got talking about uncertainty, and good luck stopping me once we get on that subject. Endlessly fascinating. So it, maybe we'll get you on again sometime next time I'm in town um, and get you on stand-up science as well. So I'm, I'm so happy that you have found time for me. I know you got to go to a meeting. I got I to gotta show and Sonoma. I got to drive two hours too. So uh, I'm going to I'm gonna let you go here. But thank you, Simona. Thank get you. Tea for, <laughs> for joining me. You were an absolutely terrific guest. Hope to see you again. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. And I hope you have a positive memory of everything we talked about today. I'll talk with you more next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, talking with marketing professor Jeff Shulman. And if you want a little, you just can't get yourself enough Shane Moss, or maybe you're just looking for another podcast to get into. So the guest next week, Jeff Shulman, he's a marketing professor at the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. And he has his own podcast called Seattle Growth Podcast. So especially if you're in the Seattle area or uh, interested in Seattle for other reasons. Maybe you're from there. Maybe you have family there. Something like that. But Or, or just want to hear about what, uh, what life is like um, in in the wonderful city of Seattle from the lens of a marketing professor talking with all sorts of people about uh, doing a series on like the homeless um, situation there and and really doing these kind of in-depth multi-episode series is on his podcast really cool podcast check it out he had me on so you can you can hear me if if uh, you want or check out some of the other guests that he has had on so i've liked um i've liked doing a little bonus um bonus babble uh at the end of these podcasts nice it's a little bonus it's like dvd extras Eh, listen if you want to if you if you don't you're not interested you got other podcasts to listen you do you got other stuff on your platter understandable and it gives me a nice little opportunity to share um uh, with you guys and i only and i only say like that too just because i don't i don't want uh, like new listeners to get uh, to to um judge the podcast on the whole based on whatever weird stuff i may rant about right now the podcast is me interviewing a scientist you already heard the podcast this is just bonus extra stuff a little cherry on top hopefully hopefully it's a tasty little cherry of thoughts and ideas i am a little high right now yeah you don't get to hear me um stoned um basically ever i i'm not a big weed guy uh not that into it and it's it's unpredictable in social situations when i do uh, for me and not for everybody uh i had i've had phases in my my life where it was just the most wonderful part of my day was getting high and that's a distant uh distant distant memory and nowadays boy the idea of sticking a microphone in front of my face 
uh, while high is not, um, you know, my my idea of a jolly good time. I I um, I'm in a bit of a hurry. I'm getting ready. I'm I'm leaving for Europe. I'm getting all packed up, and I'm kind of rushing out the door. And I and I had a little weed earlier. It's one of those that I'm like, boy, this is uh just lasting much much longer than I thought it would. Fortunately, real good high, not coming along with all the crazy paranoia and and other stuff. And then I was thinking about it, and I was like, maybe I shouldn't record. Maybe I'll maybe I'll sound high. Maybe I'll sound too far out. And then I was thinking about the ideas some of the ideas that i wanted to share with you guys which are these kind of um some optimistic takes on um some stuff i've been thinking about consciousness lately and i was like oh i'm already going to sound high people are no matter what even if i weren't many listeners would be assuming that i was high and i realized that i'm i'm kind of just uh uh there there's a aspect of me that's just high all the time now just uh just permit tripping around this existence and i did it i made it that's a good place to be in if you ask me at least at least at this moment in time it's been serving me well hasn't always sometimes unsettling sometimes confusing sometimes uh a little a little dark and scary getting into the deep inner layers of the mind but overall wouldn't trade it for anything not that it's uh, whatever I, I could i could take or leave all of this existence sometimes I still have plenty of bad days wonder what the point of doing anything is but if i'm going to be trench along and along through this life through this existence with y'all i might as well be making the most of it and uh and i feel like i have been lately and and so this is kind of my optimistic thing that i've been sort of thinking about lately because i you know i, I wanted to like make the world a better place and and you know get get the right kind of information and out there and and uh create a, a more curious culture and community and such a big ambitious i mean who who's ever going to accomplish anything i mean you could be the most influential planet on in the or most influential human in the world and at the end of your life how much of a difference did you really make i mean that's all kind of depends on what how you're measuring but are you measuring by the whole uh 11 billion uh or so years of existence in the universe, and I, I doubt you're doing much anything at all. Um, but all scalable, and in the scale of my own life, it would be nice to imagine. Yeah, I think we all would like to imagine we're making a little bit of an impact here and there, however small. Maybe not as much as we'd like sometimes. Maybe some of us don't give a shit, just riding it out. So I, I think that's. Uh, I, I sometimes find myself in that place as well. But um, but I have been thinking about that. I, I've been thinking about, um, I guess what, you know, there's, there's only so much that any one person can do, and especially when they're kind of a 
lazy procrastinating type such as myself um, but I, I I've been less slightly less frustrated I don't know if I hit like a breaking point or something where I couldn't be more irritated with existence but I, I've just been less frustrated more accepting of just life as it comes and kind of just zeroing in on little opportunities where I can make a impact and kind of make it making some better decisions mostly to suit my my own life and I, I sure would like to um, it'd be wonderful if there was some downstream effect of it positively benefiting others as well um, but again I just try not to get my hopes up too much for um, causing uh, uh, anything past any kind of a small little ripple effect of of um, positivity and curiosity or something like that. I, I don't know exactly what I'm going uh, trying to say, but what has happened in my life is that my world, my universe that I exist in, the universe that that started and ended with me. We all have a we all have a universe or really a multiverse of, of perception and experience that is the universe that that we live inside of and it's just as big as our as our lives are and whether whether you live for a day or live for a thousand years that's your your one kind of individual um universe or multiverse of of experience that that you and you alone uh get to have and of course it interacts with other people's perceptions uh, perceptual universes or whatever we're calling them and then also uh, interacting with uh, with this physical environment and everything else and but my universe in terms of in terms of just what I find myself doing and in terms of the type of people that I'm now finding myself spending time around in terms of the types of audiences that are um, coming to my shows and you know I want to be as inclusive as possible to everyone but it, yeah I've built I've built many different like small little fan bases um, through the years and the one that I kind of have right now and that the, definitely the type of people that listen to this podcast and come out to shows are just I know this is going to sound like pandering or maybe it's just like self-indulgent or my ego of just like well if you like my stuff you you are a real high caliber person to to like the, the kind of bullshit that i'm into but um but needless to say i certainly enjoy the time that i spend with in the social interactions that exist within the environments that I now find myself in, that I've kind of done as much as I can to create for myself. And I've been thinking, well, how, and I, you know, we all kind of wish more, more people could be more like us. And uh, <laughs> that's, that's sort of, I mean, I am so grateful that uh not everyone is like me mostly because i make a living off of um you know showcasing my uh my novel take on 
on this experience of existence. And um, I would no longer stand out if everyone um, was as uh, tangential of a thinker and talking about in, in these terms of of like perceptions interacting with environments and talking like that um so you know i'm i'm grateful not everyone's like me and my goodness there i'm grateful there are people that are just far more organized and <laughs> and pragmatic and then uh driven and uh, everything else that the things that i'm often uh lacking but um that being said there there are some things like say a better understanding of um say evolution that i that i think would benefit the population as a whole um you know i i think and that's that's not to get into a discussion about um you know some debate over the value of like spirituality and religion and all of that i, I just mean that um and i know plenty of people that, that find room for both but I, I do think that that something like knowing how evolution has shaped our mind and shaped our perceptions shaped the way in which we tend to behave in certain environments and social situations is really, really handy for anyone to know. And there's all sorts of important things that I'm sure that I would benefit from and, and that I don't know a thing about that that I, you could say the same thing about. But, um, but I've thought, how do you, you know, there's a big mission of the show is how do we get some of these ideas out there a little more and especially to the people that are just completely unfamiliar to this um to this stuff the people that uh, i'm sure many of you guys that maybe just haven't had the opportunity haven't had the access uh to some of these um ideas i i know that was certainly the case that i was in with the upbringing um that i had and i'm and i'm just kind of so grateful to have stumbled on some of this knowledge so say there was a goal to get it out there more how would you kind of go about having that sort of shift in consciousness i guess we would call it like a cultural consciousness and um a, a kind of cultural awakening of, of sorts. See, these things happen all the time. I, I had a guest on Stand Up Science recently who, um, who talked about collections and uh, why people collect things and, and had a lot of fun, wacky examples and then also had a real dark example of people collecting um, what, what they called the black advertisements. The Like in the 40s and stuff, there were advertisements like you know putting like an african-american woman on a motor oil sign or something like that and and that that is the the mildest of examples uh you know kind of uh, some of this stuff by today's standards is up there with nazi propaganda and you know really troubling to think about embarrassing um just for humanity to, to know that there was a time period when um, when people were 
kind of so ignorant. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the point is, is that that changed. There was a time in the 60s where, it, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people that had no idea that some of these ads, like, you know, the Aunt Jemima thing or whatever, that they just simply had no idea that any of this could even be construed as offensive by anyone. It never, it never even crossed their mind. And, and the sixties came around and, and people started to, um, uh, kind of just become a little more aware to, of how those sorts of things were impacting others, especially those, uh, people who were underrepresented and, and discriminated against and and that sort of thing so um, so you know there are these kind of cultural changes in consciousness and there's people on fringes of one side or another and um, some people that might be like overly progressive or too hypersensitive or too PC or whatever then there might be people that are you know a little behind on the times and and still uh, pretty close-minded in, in uh, many of those regards. And then a lot of us uh, fall in the middle. So how do these kind of changes occur? And how could a change like that happen with, say, people's understanding of um, evolutionary biology and psychology or something like that? Um, so something that's already taking hold. There's been a lot of influential books and you might hear words like evolution being thrown around a lot more in places you'd never expect um and and uh and and you might see some of the you know more evangelical or 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 fundamentalist rather religious groups kind of losing hold or at least making some concessions on on some of what used to be like you know this is a fact you know they're like well uh, it's a metaphor it's a metaphor for what's going on and so so this is a shift as well and so say you wanted to get what i'd be interested in is getting people from talking about Sports and weather and those sorts of things. This is this this is kind of what's bothered me my whole life is just feeling like you could never really talk about anything that felt very genuine or like it had much depth to it and and was really just stayed on the very surface level. If anything, almost completely um, a distraction from from our our inner worlds and um you know however intentional probably not very and i you know i think this is much just the way in which um this is just the cultural environment we find ourselves in and and so how do you shift that so one of the things that i've been thinking about um lately is so i I kind of have been playing around with this a thought experiment that's been really insightful for me and I, I'm still kind of checking some of the ideas um, and conclusions that I've come up with from it because um, thought experiments are uh, <laughs> uh, you know one of one of the <laughs> least valid of the experiments 
um, uh, that one can possibly run. Um, but, uh, you, you know, it, still, there's, there's only... There's a lot of things that we still don't have the tools to test, and it doesn't mean that some things aren't worth thinking about until we do. And um, so, so basically, here it is. And this is a very, very simplified version. I've been kind of writing this out um, a little more and, and taking it to some some of the more complicated um, uh, conclusions that that it leads me to. So the idea is this, is say, say rather than this one-sided conversation where you're listening to me right now, which is, which is still, you're still going to have same, some of the same, same stuff going on, but it's going to be a little bit differently. How I find it to be the most useful is to set myself in like a, um, a, a mental thought experiment of, of I'm sitting around say a group of, of uh, four or five friends or something like that. And we're sitting around a table and we're having a conversation. So um, uh, uh, to start things off, to make it just really easy, everyone at this table has uh, you know, the same kind of level of status in this relationship we find ourselves in. We've all known each other the same. That we we all have like mutual exact respect. We all and and we're all kind of as talkative or whatever as as one another. Um, that's that would never be the case. But just for a starting point, um, imagine that. So. Everyone's sitting around the table and talking, and as others are talking, you're thinking of that. You're listening, and also as you're listening, you're thinking of possible things that you might say to this conversation. And then, at some point, you say something. And the the point of of this uh, that that I would like uh, that I've been thinking a lot about and and maybe you'll get a kick out of thinking starting to think about things in this way as well. So everyone else at that table they had no idea that that you had anything else going on in your mind except what came out of your mouth uh, and and everyone else sitting around the table you might infer if you really sit and think about it on an intellectual level, you may know very well that this person, uh, you know, everyone has these busy minds and just because someone's not talking right now doesn't mean they don't have anything going through their mind, doesn't mean they potentially don't have something to say. But the point is, is that you don't know for sure that someone has something on their mind or what it is until you hear them, until you hear that message delivered. And that's the, the one thing from what's on their mind that they get to hear. So, so you say something, and as far as everyone else at that table knows, that's the only idea that you had in your head. Uh, that's the only thing that they can infer with certainty that wasn't in your head. And I think that there's a similar relationship going on with the subconscious and consciousness. And I think that for every single idea, for every memory, for everything you could think to say um, that you consciously experience, um, just every, every little thought, that there would have to be 
um, by that same kind of logic, there would have to be a number of alternative possibilities that your subconscious is working on and possibly considering, and it's sending into your consciousness the ideas and thoughts and possible things to say um, that um, that are uh, suited for the environment. So back to the table, you, you say something in the conversation. Now, what was the criteria you used to determine when you could say something? I know you're not sitting there thinking it out like this, but if you did, what, what's going on there? Uh, so there's probably the thing that you said had some context and it was associated to what the conversation was going on. There might have been some timing involved in terms of, you know, someone says something and then you quick have just like the perfect response. And that is a, um, uh, uh, you, you know, I think that there's, there's value in that. We value like, ooh, someone's quick and witty. Uh, that's probably an indicator of, of um, mental health. Not, not necessarily the best indicator, but possibly something that you could use to infer someone's processing power and therefore their, their mental health, the health, health of this brain organ they have in their heads. And, uh, and overall fitness, so there might be, there might be times in, in which you're not really, your consciousness isn't even given the chance to consider something. It just kind of shoots out your mouth. Um, uh, someone says something, bam, you have an answer. That, that internal dialogue is almost bypassed because time was of the essence. And so think about the, uh, in terms of the, the point is say you're sitting around and there's i guess there's a lot of points here but say you're sitting around having uh and everyone at the table is having a conversation um say about sports or about zebras for all that it doesn't matter um but they're having a conversation around that topic you might have something to say that's really interesting about um, countertops and the manufacturing process of countertops or something like that. Um, it would be weird if that crossed your mind. It might cross your mind if your dad makes countertops or something like that. Um, and you're at home visiting, recording this and looking around a kitchen at countertops your dad has made um those are the kind of thoughts that might come up in that environment but it's unlikely it would even cross your mind in the conversation but you might but you wouldn't and even if it did you probably wouldn't say it um is the point you might have something very interesting to say about that but it's not really relevant to the conversation about say sports and even though I'm sitting there and I don't know a damn thing about sports and I know all sorts of great interesting things about all sorts of other things um, and aspects of life it's still not it's just not that suited for the conversation and so I'm much more likely to wait until I kind of maybe think of something that is sports related and I might even be inclined to 
say just kind of like a very average, boring, just kind of making conversation comment about sports because we're just uh, we're these social animals and uh, you know everyone um we're all wanting to be involved in this social experience and feel like we're relating to one another at this at this table that we're at this thought experiment right so so there's some criteria being evaluated by by you in the five different things that you might think to be saying you're selecting the one that that is the most suited for the environment based on in a number of different criteria many more than more than the ones i've i've listed um and i'll go further into this in podcasts with guests and stuff and and in future episodes perhaps the point is is that it would benefit you to have so say you're going to have five things to select from to say it would benefit you to have five worthwhile things to say to be picking from so what your subconscious is going to do is rather than randomly pick ideas to deliver to your conscious experience for consideration for talking in this conversation rather than just randomly picking interesting things to talk about about like the history of pennies or something like that your subconscious is probably going to deliver to your consciousness some relevant information to that to this conversation as well as maybe thinking about what you have to do tomorrow um, some work projects some other things that that are on your mind are, are going to be popping up there as well but that's still um, that's that's still relevant to the environment that your subconscious finds itself in which is there's a little more going on than just this five-person conversation. There's also the rest of your life that you have to live. So there's some work things popping into your head as well. Uh, things change when there's uh, you know, a potential attractive mate and who's, who's single and you're single. You add that into that mix of these five people, this changes the dynamic. You, you, you change if you're the new one in the group or there's a new person in the group this changes the dynamics so if there's if there's if, if one of them is like a more has like a higher status in the group um, if there's personality differences and and how outgoing um, people are at the table so you know things things get messy in a hurry but the the same the same things still apply whereas there's still criteria being, uh, being met and what your subconscious is doing is adjusting and what your what much of your consciousness is is this adapted thing kind of um, interacting with the environment that you find yourself in consciousness is not this access to every bit of every memory and every experience that you've ever had in your life not that consciousness can't uh, um, um, pull from pull from any of those experiences but you're never experiencing all of that all at once you're it's you're getting the limited perception based on the environment that you find yourself in and 
the environment that I now find myself in is one where I find myself talking with scientists all of the time and then talking about science stuff on stage to audiences and listening to audiobooks through Libro.fm and uh, offer code here we are for three months for the price of one and um, the great courses plus.com slash here we are to try your first month get online education and uh, think about things like this with me and and um, you, and that's the environment that I'm inserting my subconscious into and so my subconscious is thinking of a lot of you know bigger bigger doesn't really mean anything but but um, by in in relation to your everyday like sports and weather kind of talk my my subconscious is often think churning out these ideas about consciousness because i have a talk about consciousness i have to give soon or about evolution or what have you or about insects if i have an insect podcast coming up because that's the environment that i find find myself in and so it follows that you could take just about any um, any human, every human has a subconscious that is very capable, more capable than, than I believe we're giving the human brain credit for, and insert them in a um, and in an environment where it benefits them to have conversations about, say, evolution or whatever and they will um i guess kind of rise to the occasion just to, it, it just suits their social situation more and i think that the reason why we're talking about these surface level stuff so much in our culture is because it's really safe and we keep on isolating ourselves more and more too there's historical stuff too with you know weather being something that would have been you know kind of a life or death situation through much of our evolutionary history and uh not even worth getting into sports and competition and and um where all that evolved from because this is uh, getting toward the end of what i want to say but um the the point is is I, i think that now that there is potentially more helpful information for people to have if if we find ourselves in social environments where people are having kind of these bigger conversations, we, uh, any human brain will start thinking more along those, those lines, typically. Like, I, I visit home and I hang out with people that I, uh, I know don't regularly even think about evolution or even believe in evolution. And then when I'm visiting, um, you know, I might find myself talking a little bit more about sports because I'm trying to bond with family or old friends or whatever. But I also find them, just because I'm around, I'm not talking about science or evolution or anything like that, I find them saying like, oh, I wonder why that that tree um, is... uh, it got this 
disease. That must have to do with some evolutionary thing or something like that. It's not the best example, but it, it, it happens all the time to me now where, where I find just because I'm in the proximity, I'm in the, I'm now, I've influenced this social environment, you know, and, and people are trying to connect with me just as I'm trying to connect with them. Um, that tends to bring into their consciousness more of those type of ideas. And so how do you, the listener, create an environment that is a little more rich with these kinds of conversations? If you're in a position like me that you also uh, just are, have a hard time with small talk and, and wish you were sharing bigger ideas and the uh, and I the point is is I think that there are ways of doing it I think you can be like hey I was listening to this podcast and this person was talking about this well yeah when someone asks you what you've been up to lately oh, I read this book recently I took this course recently um something like that or you're just out and about and you just read some book on the on the science of dogs or something and someone has a dog you know this stuff just starts naturally being able to pop into conversation as you continue to educate yourself it certainly does in in um in my case and and i think once you start finding those little social opportunities to share because i i think that most people actually don't want to be having these little small talk conversations and will sometimes be jumping at the chance to uh, to talk about the things that they're interested in and they just don't know how to either and they're also just looking for an opportunity and I think there is an opportunity um, to do that and and so um, so that's all. That's something I've been thinking about lately and kind of, I have some bigger ideas of kind of following that same logic, how, how you can kind of make an impact faster to, um, have, have bigger conversations in our everyday lives and start shifting the way you, um, interact in the social environment that you find yourself in so that's a little something to think about um i hope uh i hope you enjoyed it um i i know as i was explaining it you had your own ideas popping into your head your consciousness was was doing all of all sorts of interesting things and processing what i had to say and and um coming up with your own takes on what i'm saying and which is exactly my point. Um, or is it? Anyway, more on this stuff as the podcast continues. I'm, I'm working toward getting some guests to talk about some of these topics. And I've, I've started sharing some of these ideas on podcasts I've been recording. So you can look forward to hearing those over the next um, coming months or so. We're now... It's about the any episode that you're hearing now for the most part is around two months old or so something like that and so at this point in my these two months ago I was in a pretty good place that was kind of the start of this 
um, phase of, I mean, kind of just a period of, I don't know, self, self growth or something like that. Um, right now having, having a little bit of a, um, uh, it, some interchange, um, which is kind of the norm for me, not always changing in a good way, but th- this one seems to be, I um, seem to be kind of changing in a, a positive way, understanding myself a bit more and, and getting along with myself a bit more, which is leading to me getting along with others a bit more as well. So um, that's, that's the optimistic take on, hey, maybe we can all have more interesting conversations and what i like about this podcast is usually when people are like i want to talk about something smart they immediately jump to politics oh politics is a smart thing to talk about because politics is is like what how the world works or something or has some big impact on how life works and um i i don't think that it does and and not necessarily that it that it doesn't um and it's not important just that um, those conversations are all overrepresented already in our environment for how divisive they they often are. I think that um, talking about the kind of stuff that I try to explore on this podcast, I've found to be, you know, more uh, more of a way of of um, grabbing people's attention um, and and getting people thinking and having different conversations. Um, without without being divisive in, in a way that's that's appealing to uh, any individual based uh, de- independent of their of their background. Um, so uh, yeah, so thank you guys for for helping support what I do because um, I, I have been very much appreciating the uh, the life that I live in, um, lately, even, uh, the, the many, um, um, uncertainties and, and, um, frustrations and, and really mostly lately just kind of busyness over, overwhelmed with an insane amount of, uh, um, organizational responsibilities, but, um, but, it's it's come along with some of the most um kind of exciting stuff that i've ever got to do and work on and so um you you guys are a really big part of making that happen and and spreading the news about stand-up science and that sort of thing so um yeah i i hope you enjoy that and if you do i'm definitely going to be talking about these kinds of ideas during myco meditations (laughs) in jamaica um, during during the mushroom retreat, I think it really I've been kind of using 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 this kind of similar types of ways of thinking about the mind into helping myself navigate my inner worlds and inner experiences. And so yeah, I'm looking forward to um, seeing how it does communicating uh, that that to people and helping people interpret their own. Uh, psychedelic experiences next January and a whole bunch of other cool projects coming up but um, check out Michael Meditations join me in Jamaica next January and support Libro.fm and thegreatcoursesplus.com slash here we are those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorite
Jack and Audio, a, podca- <clears throat> a podcast network.